Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for listening. You are listening to uh, a Warden FinTech podcast with uh, with Max, who is the co-founder of Talia. Max, thanks very much for uh, joining us. Thank you. So want to quickly talk about your background. We've got a list of uh, topics that we wanted to run through. But before we begin, um, before you'd co-founded Talia and become the uh, the head of strategy there, you'd, uh, you'd started another company called Ebidos. And you've clearly mm-hmm. spent a large portion of your career surrounded by entrepreneurs and technologists. Have you seen any type of trends uh, or like key characteristics of entrepreneurs uh, that have made them particularly successful? Yeah, um, so that's correct. I had a company before Talia, uh, as you mentioned, the name was Abydos. And uh, the first thing I have to say was back in Germany, uh, beginning of the millennium, like 2000 to 2005, back in Germany. Um, as a matter of fact, I was not surrounded by many entrepreneurs then. <laughs> Germany is a, it changed now, but uh, uh, back in the days, Germany was not a very entrepreneur-friendly, startup-friendly country. Nevertheless, you're right. I mean, since then, moved to the U.S., I uh, spent quite some time uh, raising money, ma- raising venture capital, and talking to other entrepreneurs. And um, yeah, to the question, so what do I see? What are what are the characteristics? Uh, a few that, that, that pop up in my head, like persistency, right? The, the good ones I met, the good entrepreneurs that I admire, they never give up. Just they try, they try. Even if the, if the idea is so out there and the, the, the feedback is uh, so horrible and devastating, they keep trying. They believe in it. So persistency is the is the one thing. Um, passion. Um, although you will hear a lot um, um, that passion is not the only thing, um, and passion is not a necessary ingredient. I kind of agree to some extent at the beginning. If you think about an idea, maybe the passion is not the most important thing. But once you formulate your idea, once you once you start, once you get into it, and once you once you develop that idea, I think a passion is at least super helpful. I would go that far that uh, it is a, a key ingredient to be uh, a successful and uh, uh, make a change. Um, let's be honest, uh, every single one that I know, every single entrepreneur, uh, my co-founders obviously included, are super hard workers. So you just can't do it on the side uh, if you, if you want to uh, be successful as a startup guy. You just can't do it with the normal work hours. Let's be honest, uh, you've got to work hard, really, in terms of hours, in terms of travel, in terms of multitasking. It's, at least in my experience, it, it's, it's, it's just hard work. Um, the last thing, maybe, most of the people that uh, uh, get into startups that uh, I think are successful and that I admire, they look at a bigger picture and they look not at a monetary outcome. So it's not about getting rich, because let's be very honest here, if you want to get rich, a startup is not necessarily the right place. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the, the failure rate is so high, you're just way more, uh, way better off if you, if you join a corporation, if you want to get rich over the, over the course of 10 or 20 years. A startup is not the place to be. So in order to be successful, in order to be um, a successful entrepreneur, there needs to be more than just want to get rich, much more. You want to make a change. You want to make the change and the cheesy, the cheesy statement, you want to make the world a better place. Yes, to some extent, that's true for pretty much everybody I know in that space. Got it. And you sort of touched on this in what you just said, but what are sort of two or three of the biggest pitfalls you see amongst uh, sort of budding entrepreneurs, uh, you know, mistakes they make early on that sort of preordain them to failure, um, at least at the get-go? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, talk a little bit about my experience. Uh, raising money is one thing. There are businesses where 
you want to scale fast, there's a big market opportunity, you want to raise money. But it 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 should it should depend on the problem that you want to solve in a company that you think you build in the market. It should not be the other way around. Let's raise some money and figure out what's out there. So I I saw companies fail with that mindset. Serial entrepreneurs even often that just raise some money and then realize that that is not a venture business, a venture capital business. That's one thing I want to mention. Uh, 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 bad hires. I oh my god, I made mistakes uh, so many um, by by just hiring at the wrong time the wrong people. Uh, hiring too early is one thing. Getting getting the big guns in early, the VPs of sales, right? I remember when um, we raised our Series A, one of the first things we did uh, was getting a VP of sales in and soon after a VP of engineering. That was way too early. We didn't even figure out our sales process yet. So hiring too early, the big guns, definitely a, a mistake I made and, and I know it from many others as well. Um, what are the pitfalls? Again, from, from my example, um, some things we did great, but I know others did not so great, and some things at Talia we did not so so perfect, is focus. So um, I'm pretty proud what we did at Talia in terms of focusing from a geography perspective. So the first, was it, four years of our existence, it was a North American play only. So our customers we exclusively sold in the United States and Canada. It was tempting to go Asia. It was tempting to go back to Europe. I'm, I'm, I'm German, as you uh, undoubtedly uh, realize um, up to now. Um, it was tempting to go back to Europe and, uh, 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 yeah, uh, go home to my home market, go to the UK and sell there. But we re-resisted re- re- that urge and uh, stayed in, the, in North America for four years. And even when we then uh, uh, entered the European market, so to say, we focused there on the UK. So for one, one and a half, two years, we only sold in the, in the kingdom. Um, and after that, Germany. So step by step and not taking on the whole world at once. Uh, again, that, that's a lesson I learned from Taulia because uh, in, in between we made some mistakes. We tried some other markets in Latin America and even in Asia to some extent. And um, good news is we quickly realized that it's uh, premature and pulled out of those markets. So uh, focus is, is a thing that other entrepreneurs tripped, tripped over a lot. Again, for some companies going globally immediately with a lot of funding might work, but for Taulia and uh, I would say uh, for many others, the geographical focus was important. And the same for product, by the way. It is tempting. There are so many shiny things out there that you want to go after, uh, that you hear from your customers, that the competition does, that you see on on this trade show, and so on and so forth. But keeping focus on the product, on your core vision, um, is uh, is key. Again, Italia, we made our share of mistakes. And if I could go back, there are some things that I wouldn't go after now. But... uh, Overall, I would say we did a pretty decent job on keeping our initial vision and the focus on that vision going. Um, what else is important? Uh, letting go. That's the thing I learned in the last, I'd say, one or two years. Again, painfully, uh, with uh, uh, painful lessons learned, is, is letting go. Like really uh, trusting your, your, your fellow management team members, trusting your product team, trusting pretty much everyone in the company that they can do their job. And uh, Because I mean, the early days of a startup, in the first one or two or three years, you are involved in everything, and uh, you 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 have an opinion on everything. But letting go um, and trusting others to do their job again, it depends a little bit on making the right hires, right? But uh, if you if you did that, letting go is 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 uh, is, is important. And the last last one maybe um, there there's this famous P word, the process policies, which for a startup guy. They sound horrible, this, this, and it is. Let's be honest. I'm, I'm still have a hard time getting used to it, but it's a necessary evil. And uh, 
if if you want to scale a company at the right time, you got to establish some some procedures, some policies, and some processes. So I had to get used to that, and I had to learn that the hard way. Got it. Um, you know, one of the points you'd made uh, was about um, keeping your uh, focus. And clearly, um, it seems like for a lot of startups that try and diversify into new product lines or new verticals or new businesses, um, clearly, just by virtue of the fact that they see those as being untapped markets, there's clearly an impetus to move beyond. When you guys were thinking about geographic expansion and, and thinking beyond the scope of initially what you'd conceived, what was, I mean, when did you realize it was now, now was the right time to move into a new market or now is the right time to move into a different, you know, customer segment? Yeah, there's no there's no easy answer for that, but it uh, it it's actually very analytic uh, analytical what we do. So if we think about a new market, we analyze the size. What's the in my space in our space here, Italia? What's the what's the B2B payment size in that market? Uh, what's uh, the the cultural uh, um, the, the the cultural receptiveness for early payments for discounts? So there's uh, actually a, a very analytical process with uh, six or seven parameters that we put in to see what could be the next target market. And that's how we came up with, all right, it's, it's, not only, um, it's not only nice because myself and my co-founders are German, but Germany is actually a great next market for Talia because of, uh, because of size, because of culture, obviously, because of language. Um, and that's uh, how we decided we give it a shot. Um, and uh, as I said, we did that uh, a few times with some markets where, well, after a few months, we realized it was a wrong decision. So I think the ability to, well, analyze up front, do your homework, go into a market, but then monitor it carefully and having actually then the, the guts as well to get out of a market if it doesn't work, I think is important as well. Got it. That makes perfect sense. So let's talk a little bit now about um, sort of the founding of Talia. You know, you and your co-founders had a vision and there was an inspiration there. Could you talk about the key problem you're trying to address? Sure. Being points so, for, uh, for merchants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so in my pre I'll start with the previous company. And on a high level, what we did there kind of made it natural to, to come up with Taulia. So my previous company, as you said, the name is Abydos. It was a, a pretty boring workflow company, I want to call it. AP automation. So we went to large corporations, the, the Intels, the Apples, the Kelloggs of the world, and um, yeah, uh, uh, sold them a, a workflow solution so their invoices, their incoming invoices, their accounts payable, the, the, the millions of invoices they get every year, they can be automated. So they get them into their ERP system, SAP, Oracle, whatever it is, faster, more efficient. So that was, that was the, 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 the previous company. So helping big corporations getting a handle on their accounts payable, right? AP automation. Um, we sold that company uh, in 2006, but realized then uh, between 2006 and 2009 that there's actually one thing that we did achieve but didn't take advantage of, didn't help anyone, is like, all right, we help those big corporations to get invoices, incoming invoices, processed faster. So the apples of the world were now able and ready to pay those suppliers, those suppliers who sent the invoices, earlier. So they could but nobody did. I mean, why would you? Uh, why would Apple pay a supplier early? If the invoice is a net 30 and net 45, then you pay after 30 or 45 days. I mean, you and me, we, we don't pay our credit card or our mortgage early. We pay on exactly the date that is on the, on the credit card statement. The same for invoices. So we realized, oh, there's something wrong here. We, we now help to make it possible for large corporations to, buy early, uh, to pay early. And the flip side, we know that, especially after 2008 and 9. 
that small and medium businesses starve for cash. They want to be paid earlier. They don't want to wait 60 days. And after things like Basel III and Dodd-Frank, those companies did not have access to liquidity anymore, those small and medium businesses. So wait, wait a moment. There are companies that could pay early, have billions in cash lying around. Just think Apple again. And on the flip side, there are those suppliers that want to be paid early. So we brought those two together. And in the meantime, we actually put more bells and whistles on that. So actually, if there's an Apple that doesn't have cash, we can help as well because we're just leveraging the credit rating of Apple to access liquidity on our own. So in essence, we help out uh, suppliers of large corporations to get paid earlier and the large corporation can use their own cash or third-party cash. So it's a, a classical win-win. We don't have many of those, but it is a true one where buying organizations win by putting their cash to work potentially and uh, small suppliers, small medium businesses win by accessing liquidity to rates that are incredibly favorable. And how does that work? Why is there a win-win? Because there is never a free lunch, right? Well, because historically the banks were there in the middle and pretty much dipped and participated from both sides, from the large corporations and the SMB. By taking the banks somewhat out of the equation here and connecting the large corporation Apple with their tens of thousands of suppliers, you were able to, uh, to have both parties benefit. Perfect. And that's actually a great segue to the next question. So you mentioned banks and how they were traditionally involved in these transactions. Um, so just thinking about the competitive dynamics here. Um, so you've got banks who are, you know, they've got the ability to lend. And then you've got companies like SAP and Oracle that are so embedded in the ERP uh, of some of these largest corporations. How come, I guess it's a twofold question. First is how come banks didn't readjust um, more quickly to what you guys were doing and try and emulate it? And then the second question is, is how come SAP and Oracle, I mean, what's the rationale behind why they haven't sure. necessarily gotten too involved in the space yet? Yep. Um, let's start with the banks. Um, and just, just to be perfectly clear, there is a nice coexistence as well between, between uh, what we offer at Talia to our customers and uh, a bank solution. So we, we have customers, plenty of them, that offer a traditional bank solution that's called supply chain finance, uh, reverse factoring. Um, they offer that to uh, uh, the top 10, 20 suppliers of a large corporation, and then Talia handles the other 10,000 or 20,000 suppliers. So that's my first statement. There is a coexistence possible. The second one is with the banks. That while we eliminated in some cases banks, uh, uh, we still use banks for what they do best, like lending. So banks are not technology players. They're just not. They don't have the technology. They don't have the knowledge. Nor do they have the intention to be that expert on the technology side to actually go deeper into the supply chain. They're perfectly happy to go after those 10 or 20 suppliers. Um, we at Talia are not. We want to go after all suppliers. We want to offer to all suppliers beneficial payment terms. Uh, but we still use banks for the payment itself and for the funding. So from that perspective, we kind of reduced a little bit the banks to I want to call it their original purpose, if you want, of being the money provider, of being a really, really reasonable and cheap source of cash. Um, but we are the technology provider. So that's on the bank side of the house. And to your question, why are banks not going on their self there? Well, they don't have a real interest to go there. It's, uh, it's, uh, there's not a lot of money to make compared to, uh, to their other offerings. So there's a little bit of innovator's dilemma here, and we talk about that uh, again when, when we talk about SAP or Oracle in a minute. Um, and, uh, and there's just a, a, a regulation and cost problem that banks have, like historically very locked in and into their established old-school processes. So it's impossible for them to get rid of their paper processes of onboarding suppliers in our world. So they stop after 10 or 20 suppliers because it gets just too expensive um, to onboard, validate, KYZ, and AML a supplier. 
with technology, you can solve a lot of those things. Again, I'm not saying there's a shortcut for regulations because there isn't, but with technology, you can make it much, much, much uh, smoother, simpler, and faster. To your question on uh, why is an uh, Oracle or an SAP or uh, who else is out there a workday not going into our space? Um, A few things to that. First one, I mean, one of my most famous books that I read many years ago is, is The Innovator's Dilemma because, I mean, they look at their existing customer base, they uh, see what their customers demand, and uh, their sales guys get the quota on that, and that's what the, the engineering team and the product team builds. So looking outside of the box is pretty hard for large corporations, for the SAPs of that world. Um, many of them, uh, especially in an area like, like fintech, I mean, think about it, Oracle, SAP, Definitely not fintech companies, right? Uh, software companies trying now to be software as a service companies, but being being financial plays, being fintech companies, they rather partner, and that's what they do. Many of them, they look for players in our space, in our space, and try some partnerships with them. And uh, I don't think there's a a, a a a lot of surprise here. Uh, if they see those partnerships work, there will be acquisitions and consolidations as well in that space, where. The, the, the cash-rich ERP players will acquire some companies and, uh, and add their solution and, like history told us, likely fail because it's not that easy just acquiring a company and put it into the portfolio. Very often that, uh, that, uh, that is not a success. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are some of the, the, the reasons why Oracle, SAP are not in our space with their own solution. Got it. That makes sense. So just changing gears a little bit here, um, Sort of harking back to the, to the days where you and your co-founders were just starting uh, Talia and seeing to where it, where it is now with you know over 250 employees, you know book of business that includes some of the most uh, well-known blue chip clients. When you think about some of the most difficult aspects of scaling the business from where it was to where it is now, um, what would you say um, sort of the few big ones uh, have been? Now you mentioned just keeping uh, keeping focus and staying true to the vision and, and you know being um, sort of disciplined with the hiring. But what else uh, sort of did you come across? Did you did that you know that you'd not necessarily anticipated would be problems? Sure. Um, so we, we we touched on some of them uh, before. Uh, you, you mentioned the focus again, uh, not going over the next uh, shiny thing. We uh, on the hiring side of the house again. So hiring too early is one thing. But uh, hiring too early the big guns is one thing, but hiring too late is another thing. Uh, you 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 got to acknowledge that at a certain time of your startup, of your when you reach a certain threshold, and that threshold is not like it's 90 employees. It's 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 different for every startup. But at a certain time, there are some roles that that you need to fill that uh, you you didn't need before. And uh, hiring them too late can be equally as uh, poisonous or as uh, painful for a startup as hiring someone too early. So Getting those in at the right time, uh, at the right time, uh, having a, let's see examples here, having a chief marketing officer, someone that thinks from a marketing perspective, big picture, is is important. Having someone um, that thinks globally. Uh, so we're in a very comfortable position that myself and my co-founders, we're German, so Germans in San Francisco. So from that perspective, we have a, a little bit of an unfair advantage of thinking not only on the U.S. market, but always think about the global market and. Not only from a sales perspective, by the way, because I said before, we focus very strongly on certain markets, but our product is used by small, medium businesses in 160 countries, so all over the world. So having that mindset of a supplier in Italy uh, will use our software very differently than a supplier in China 
or a supplier here in the United States. And that's a mindset we grew up with. Um, and that's a mindset that we, um, we kept and put it into our product, into our rollouts, into our implementation process. So those are some of the things that, uh, that we learned. And uh, again, uh, just to be fair, we made our share of mistakes as well on the way. But I think uh, uh, we, we might have been a little bit better than uh, just an uh, American-focused startup. That makes sense. Um, so when you think about sort of, you know, the fond memories you have of starting the company and sort of the, the collective history, Italia, was there ever an instance where you and your co-founders just looked at each other and thought, this is, you know, you guys come across a big problem and just looked at each other and said, this isn't necessarily something we can solve. We might have to, uh, to pack up here. Did you guys ever have a moment like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not, I cannot name any, any of the big customers, but um, we, we did say no to a few, few really, really Fortune 50 companies that uh, had their, their requirements. Um, and uh, at a certain time in the sales process, we just uh, were honest to ourselves and uh, told them that uh, we're not the right solution for them. Um, maybe a year or two earlier, uh, when I look back, I would have tried to make those customers happy, but uh, with the right maturity, um, we were able to say no to certain customers. And it hurts. It's painful to say to, to one of the biggest companies of this planet that we, we're not the right fit for them, knowing that they will likely go with the competition and uh, knowing that uh, our business is very sticky and probably I'm not getting another chance of talking to those customers, at least in the, in the next five to ten years. So that's super painful, but it's a great lesson as well if you do that, to say no, because this is just not the right fit. And from a product perspective, from a scope solution perspective, we just cannot help you. So those are definitely happened in the past where we said no. Um, as I said before as well, uh, 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 there, there are expectations um, from partners as well. So we get inquiries of partners who want to work with us. Uh, again, on, on the financial side of the house, banks, card companies. And uh, yeah, you gotta be, you got to look in each other's eyes and, and, and think about carefully if this makes sense. If you really want to invest the time to work with a bank, with a financial institution at this point in time and go into a certain market and uh, expand your product or if you just park that or, yeah, and then say no to those companies. And we, we did that, I would say, pretty well. Got it. So, again, I want to shift gears here to talk a little bit more about strategy, Italia. And you're uh -huh. currently the chief strategy officer. <clears throat> and one of the things that we've seen with companies that have strategy teams that come to Warden um, to talk about what strategy roles are, it's clear that strategy means very different things at very different companies. In some instances, it's more execution-focused versus in others, it's more high-level, setting the strategic direction of the company. So with that said, um, you know, what does it mean to be the head of yeah. strategy, Italia? What is, what is sort of your mandate? Let's be very honest. As you said, we're like approaching 300 employees. So a head of strategy, Italia, is certainly very different than being the head of strategy at... I'm looking out of my window at PG&E or Salesforce, right? Completely yeah. different, uh, different role, different scope. Um, what did it mean for me? Um, I'm still very, very deeply involved when it comes to anything strategic product uh, um, innovation. Uh, let me give you an example. So there are some projects, obviously, over the last few years uh, that we look at when it comes to those shiny things I mentioned before. Well, we're not going with our full product team into one of those new shiny things, be it the blockchain, being chatbots, being whatever you want to name. But nevertheless, we look at those. And uh, so I'm spearheading some of those initiatives where 
we prototype, we pilot, we partner and uh, uh, on a project basis and then decide pretty quickly, sometimes not as uh, fast as I, I wish, but pretty quickly uh, whether this is something that we want to pursue from a strategic perspective or not. So there are those projects um, in the product area as well as in the partner and sales area where we look at certain partners, throw out some pilots there we work with and see if, if, there's, if this makes sense. So from that perspective, that's certainly one piece. The other one when it comes to strategy is, um, although I try to be as, uh, yeah, as market-facing as possible, out there with customers on conferences, uh, prospects, and so on, uh, there is a whole part of the organization, the sales team, the marketing team, as well as product, that are way, way, way more often out there. So part of my role is to to digest all the input that I get from the market directly, as well as our employees that are market-facing, and make sense of them. Make sense of them, and then come up with a more corporate strategy of uh, what things we should go after. Again, that might be product-related, that might be sales-related, uh, that might be geography expansion-related. Um, so uh, to your question, it's a mix of having those little projects where we try out things and then taking the ingredients from the field and uh, formulating a bigger strategy. Again, I want to emphasize, I am not the chief strategy officer of Salesforce, so it's will still very hands-on and changing every day here in a small startup. Got it. So in certain companies, it seems like the strategy is dictated sort of in the ivory tower by a few executives and then everyone else at the company just goes and executes on that. But it sounds like it's much more, um, I guess the way to describe it is bottoms up, Italia, where you're taking a lot of market information, talking to your sales team, product folk and your customers and sort of synthesizing that and building a product strategy based on what you're hearing. So, I mean, the ingredients come from the field. And again, while I'll try to get as much as, uh, information as possible direct, firsthand myself, uh, it, it would be foolish not to uh, include your, your employees that are out there, your partners that are out there. So those are the ingredients, right? You get them, you, you put all of them together, but you need someone, and either it's a dedicated role like myself or uh, the management team or a, a, a group within the management team, you need then some part of the organization to have the bigger picture and put those together because the individuals out in the field, they come up with great ideas, are very passionate, but well, they don't know the whole picture. They don't. They come up with an idea that works great for North America, but it would be fatal for Europe if we pursue that avenue. Well, you need someone, and that's currently my role, that uh, uh, gets those ingredients, gets those ideas, and then makes globally sense of them. Um, so it, it, it's both. Uh, it's, it's the field with the input, but I think you need someone uh, on top or somewhere up that uh, has a strategic head on. Got it. You know, it, it seems like it's, a very cross-functional role. It's a very impactful role. Um, but I guess you're getting all these data points from people in the field. How do you then translate that into actually effectuating change at the company or in product? You know, what's sort of the, the, the link there? Yeah. Basically, how do you get buy-in from everyone? You know, you mentioned it's a fast-growing organization. There are close to 300 people now. How do you get everyone to buy-in? First of all, again, 300 people is not that much. So, it is much easier to uh, to have a direct conversation with uh, the leadership team or whoever is involved in a discussion, but the, the, the communication is key here. Uh, get them involved early and make them aware that you think about certain topics, that there are certain pilots running. Um, if you just come at the very end with a result, let's say we, uh, I'm just making an example right now, uh, we look at the blockchain and uh, 
a little team, uh, uh, does some pilots, and then three months down the road, I go to uh, my chief product officer and tell him that's the way to go. It's harder to get buy-in. Uh, it's much smarter and much easier early on to involve my, my counterpart, tell him at least about the ideas, and uh, yeah, and likely, very likely, he has some ideas as well in that area. And then later on, when the pilot or prototype is done, uh, getting his buy-in to then move or not move into that space is much easier. So get get those parties involved early. Don't ignore them. Uh, get feedback from the field, as I said before a few times. Those are some of the very basic things that at least I do and I feel are successful. Got it. Now, just putting on sort of the uh, the big picture hat here, uh, what's your sort of perspective on the trends um, in sort of the supply chain financing industry? What are the key sort of secular trends that you're seeing that are going to you know that are going to continue to grow um sort of your area yeah. um beyond where it already is so uh, the first one is actually if i take one step back and not only talk about supply chain finance about but 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 about small business lending in in general like providing liquidity to 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 businesses around the world i think we saw the proof points already that a symmetrical view on things and let me explain in a minute what i mean with that a symmetrical view on things is the winning theme. So if I'm a small, medium business and I'm completely in isolation, try to get funding for an invoice, an early payment, I factor my invoice or I try to get a line of credit, it's extremely expensive because, well, guess what? Nobody knows a lot about this small and medium business and the risk is pretty high. So those isolated, yep. non-symmetrical views, I think they're helpful. Don't get me wrong. They're helpful. They have their place. But they're not the holy grail. They're not the final solution. The final solution is to look holistically, symmetrically at a supplier and their customer, the buying organization, and then leverage the cash of the buying organization or the balance sheet of the buying organization or leveraging the credit rating of the buying organization and let that trickle down to the entire supply base. I think that's, that's what we see as the, the winning theme of this, of this bi-directional view on things. That's the first one. Um, the second one is, and now going really into supply chain finance, is providing flexibility to a buying organization, a customer, of using their own cash, if they're cash rich, if they're Apple and have 200 billion lying around, if they are a German company or a Swiss company where there's negative interest rates right now on the, on the cash that they have at hand, and allowing them to use their own cash when appropriate, or using third-party cash if, uh, if not. So that flexibility to change, to combine, to mix and match is definitely a trend we see in, in supply chain finance. And the last one I want to mention is um, having a solution uh, that, uh, because banks play in that space for years, so we didn't invent that, but having a solution that is not only addressing the largest of the largest suppliers, uh, the IBMs of that world as a supplier. No, a solution that addresses the entire supply chain, where even the guy that uh, puts up the Christmas tree once a, week, uh, once a year, that guy can be paid early uh, and have access to liquidity at favorable rates instead of 30 40% annually uh, with alternative solutions, which can kill a business. So I think those are some of the trends that we see. And obviously, I mean, uh, uh, not hiding it, uh, the, the, the blockchain is something that uh, everybody looks at. So do we. Um, I cannot sh share more at the moment, but obviously there will be change, there will be impact. Uh, it won't happen tomorrow, but uh, probably sooner than we all think. Got it. Um, so with regards to blockchain, and I know you had intimated this um, just now, it, it seems like there have been waves of, of Bitcoin and blockchain um, you know, through the hype cycle now. 
yep. you know, it certainly seems like there's more of an impetus for blockchain rather than Bitcoin as sort oh, of a. Uh, so, just want to get your sense. What's how do you separate sort of hype from reality? There, I mean, what what gives you confidence that it's actually going to be something that a company like Talia can actually take advantage of um, in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. So first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're not talking here about Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin, nice, great first application on the blockchain, uh, was a great proof of concept. Um, and a great proof. And that's my first statement. So Bitcoin proved that the blockchain approach actually works. With all the ups and downs and all the problems that we saw uh, and still see, uh, I think uh, the technology itself is now uh, uh, proven as a as an immutable uh, distributed ledger. Um, and uh, what gives me confidence that uh, that this will be a, a revolution in the trade finance world? Um, I could say, but it's not a true statement. I could say that I see so much activity and every bank jumps on that right now that there must be something. But if I would go after that, I think uh, I w I, that would not be a great indicator because uh, banks, like every company, go after after the, 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 the shiny things as well. So now what gives me confidence is actually by looking into that uh, as a company myself and being in that space for years and seeing, really, really understanding the technology advantage that a blockchain approach for trade finance will bring. So it's not, not what theoretically could happen, but uh, uh, looking really things that are already out there that happen today, uh, not in a large scale, it's all prototypes and pilots, but seeing that actually work and then it doesn't take a lot to extrapolate that to uh, to a corporate scale, so that gives me confidence on uh, on the blockchain. Uh, but uh, uh, back to the to the to the question uh, in in more general, um, I, I, am I 100% sure that the blockchain will solve and uh, revolutionize the trade finance? I'm not. There's huge risk um, uh, uh, with every new technology, but I do think we uh, um, I give it a higher probability than, than than some of the other things that we saw in the past. Got it. Makes sense. Um, now, a couple more questions. Uh, one is, so if you think about what's happened in fintech over the last, you know, year, year and a half, there have sort of been two pushes and pulls. You know, on one hand, the likes of Lending Club, OnDeck, Prosper, mm -hmm. a lot of the quote-unquote tech-enabled lending businesses have lost their luster. Um, part of that emanated through Lending clubs, um, sort of, uh, that would happen with lending club, uh, you know, in February, March of this year, and part of it's just by virtue of, you know, general sentiment towards the fact that interest rates are going up and these companies haven't really existed in the down credit cycle, so there's, there's not as much, uh, sort of, um, investor confidence in that. Um, and then on the other hand, within fintech, you have, um, you know, sort of verticals within fintech. You think of like. Reg tech or uh, insure tech mm. that are growing very quickly and are attracting a lot of attention. I guess overall, if you think about the industry, I mean, uh, it's lost it's lost its luster a little bit. I, you know, what's to give MBAs who want to go into the uh, in, you know into the industry more confidence that it's actually fintech, um, you know, in the way we think about it and see it now, is actually an industry that's you know going to be um, able to withstand any sort of bust and, and is actually an industry that's here to stay. Sure. So first of all, you said it already. There, there is not... Fintech five years ago was a term that uh, covered a few companies. Fintech now is uh, dozens of different verticals within Fintech, uh, be it insurance, be it retail banking, be it supply chain finance, be it whatever, right? There, there, within Fintech, there are now all those flavors. And you're absolutely right. The, the lending space got a little bit of a bad, uh, a bad rep. 
<laughs> let me put it like that, uh, beginning of the year. Rightfully so, by the way, rightfully so, because what we saw at Landing Club and, and some others, yeah, it was a little bit overheated. And there were some definitely some things that uh, were not conforming and uh, not uh, not according to regulations. So from that perspective, there was a little bit of a yeah uh, correction, I would say. Um, it, in addition to that, you have to say that uh, in January, February, and March, when the Landing Club uh, problem happened, the market by itself was extremely shaky and uh, um, not only for fintech but just for software as a service and for investments in general so then having that that problem that lending club had uh, uh, together with a general funding uh, environment uh, just accelerated uh, the the let's say the the spot on fintech as potentially being an area that uh, is not as growth um, uh, uh, there is not as much growth potential as they thought so from that perspective, we see, especially in the last three months, that uh, things changed. It recovered substantially. So you saw some funding rounds, um, and uh, obviously we we're in the market and always looking uh, the 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 multiples, the um, the the liquidity available uh, changed. So while it was a necessary correction and it was great to look at certain things, I think we're through that. And uh, uh, the main thing for me is. I mean, if you're a company with a PowerPoint concept uh, in the fintech area, I think it's pretty hard right now. And it's, it's, it's right that it's hard. Uh, a year ago, it was perfectly possible to, to raise millions just on a PowerPoint um, in the fintech area. Now, uh, 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 yeah, things like solving a real business problem, as we do at Talia, and having real paying customers, as we do at Talia, helps obviously substantially to differentiate yourself from the rest of the field. So... That's a little bit, if you ask me, um, if, if I'm a, 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 a Wharton um, fintech uh, uh, alumni or looking for a job, there, there, there's, there's something to be said to go early in a startup because you learn more. But if you're looking for more security, look for a little bit of an established company, established being three, four, five years in, uh, that has proven customers and proves a real problem out there and someone is re- willing and ready to pay for that. Got it. And that is... Uh... Possibly the best segue to the uh, to the final question, which is, um, you know, a lot of uh, the people who are going to be listening to this podcast, um, you know, are prospective entrepreneurs and they are people with MBAs that are looking to transition um, to sort of fintech, smaller disruptive companies, either in sort of a more entrepreneurial role, whether they're founding a company or whether they are going to be employee like three, four, five, or six. Given that you've got that perspective um, and yeah. you know co-founded a couple of very successful companies, you know what's what's the advice? You know, if you had one or two things to tell uh, MBAs or budding entrepreneurs, what advice would you would you give? So it depends a little bit on your risk profile, right? I mean, um, yep. I I'd say if you want to play it a little bit more safe than uh, a more established startup, Talia size, five years in, is uh, maybe the, the the place to be. You do. You will learn a lot as well here, but you will learn not as uh, as as much is the wrong word, but not in as many areas as you go join a startup um, in uh, in year one or year two, where you're the first of ten employees or something like that, where you pretty much sell, build the product, and uh, support the customers uh, all at the same day. So you learn all of that. So if uh, that that's the first thing. So what's your risk profile? Your personal risk profile, um, because yeah, in an established company, you definitely. Uh, uh, can learn a little bit uh, just in one area, but it's safer in a startup with 10 employees. Well, chances are a year later, this company is no longer with us. Um, but the learning is higher in, in, in a smaller company. Uh, that's the first thing. If you aspire at one point to 
be an entrepreneur and have your own startup, uh, then definitely I would recommend at least spend a year or two in a company like a startup. It doesn't really matter then in that case uh, if it's early or mid-stage startup. But just from my experience, just jumping directly from, from, from school, um, maybe it might be, obviously uh, there is a lot of work experience, but uh, getting some fintech experience from, from one of those startups before you build your own one, I think is uh, advisable and, and helpful. That's at least my take. Um, so, uh, and if you go into the startup world, especially especially if, you, if you're an entrepreneur and want to build your own company, don't do it for the money. I mentioned it at the very beginning. If you want to get rich, startups is not the right thing. Startups just literally... You look at the numbers don't make you rich there so there there's some uh, exceptional outcomes but probability wise uh, if you if you do it for the money that's not the place to be got it all very very helpful max thank you so much for your time this has been uh, this has been really great to have you and to get your perspective on entrepreneurship and supply chain financing um thank you so much thank you thanks thank you all right have a great day max thank you okay bye bye ciao all right ciao bye thank you